Hey, Josh here with the Wild West Extravaganza. Just touching base and letting you know that there will not be a new episode this week. Just between me, you, and the wall, I was planning on covering the great fur trapper and explorer, John Coulter. But that soon morphed into me working on an entire series on the Lewis and Clark expedition. And when it comes to the Lewis and Clark expedition, there's a lot to talk about. It's taken me much longer than expected, and this is going to be a long one. I'm thinking a minimum of five episodes, and then we'll discuss Mr. John Coulter. By the way, if you're not familiar, Coulter was a member of the Lewis and Clark expedition, a.k.a. the Corps of Discovery, and when they headed back to civilization, he stayed behind. If you've ever seen that old movie, The Mountain Men, that scene where Charlton Heston is captured by the Blackfeet, ends up running away and hiding out in a beaver dam, that's based on John Coulter. Anyway, like I said, it's coming very soon, so please stick around. We'll either be dropping episode one in the series on Lewis and Clark next Wednesday or the Wednesday after. No later than that, I promise. In the meantime, boy oh boy, do I have a treat for you. American Criminal is a brand spanking new true crime history podcast from the same people that brought you American Scandal and American History Tellers. Each week, host Jeremy Schwartz explores the dark side of the American dream the notorious felons and outlaws who tried to lie, cheat, and murder their way to the top. Jeremy will be getting inside the minds of both criminals and victims alike as we learn all about the historical context behind the crimes. And right out the gate, Season 1 is going to be covering one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. I actually remember when that happened. It was back in 1989 when brothers Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. The prosecutors, along with most of the press, said that it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led the two greedy rich kids to murder. Maybe, or maybe the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built was hiding some pretty trouble and abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill, or could it have even been a case of self-defense? In addition to the Mendez brothers, American Criminal will also be covering the likes of Al Capone, Georgia Tan, Sam Bankman-Fried, or Freed, I'm actually not sure which one, Charles Manson, Mark Hoffman, Ghislaine Maxwell, oh boy, and even Bernie Madoff. Remember him? And there's plenty more to come after that. Episode 1 is out right now as we speak. Stick around and I'll play you a little short clip. I think you're going to like what you hear. And if you'd like to get the full episode, just search for American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Link down below. That's American Criminal. Anyway, that's enough of me yapping. Without further ado, here's an excerpt from episode one. It's August 20th, 1989. A cool, quiet evening in Beverly Hills. A city for the rich and famous, it's an insular, privileged community. The houses are mansions, the streets are luxuriously wide, and the lawns remain lush and verdant even in a drought. But as the saying goes, all that glitters is not gold. At 722 North Elm Drive, a 9,000-square-foot Mediterranean-style home with green palms and monsteras sits behind a black wrought-iron gate. Inside the house, Jose and Kitty Menendez are relaxing. It's a Sunday night, and the couple are in the living room. The flickering light of the television bounces off the wood paneling. Family photos dot the walls. Posed portraits of Jose and Kitty with their two sons, 21-year-old Lyle and 18-year-old Eric. 
All bright smiles, perfect teeth, perfect hair, the perfect family. Those two sons aren't in the room for this family night, though. Not yet. Just before 10 p.m., the living room's double doors burst open. Lyle and Eric are both holding 12-gauge shotguns. Without saying a word, the brothers raise their weapons and start firing. Immediately, Jose gets to his feet and shouts something at his sons, a protest or a plea for mercy. But they're not listening. The brothers unload shell after shell into their own parents. After what feels like hours, but is actually closer to seconds, the brothers are out of ammunition and rush from the darkened room. Jose's lifeless body is slumped on the couch, chunks of his flesh ripped away by buckshot. But on the ground, 47-year-old Kitty is still moving, pained moans emanating from her bloody form. Kitty's eyes swim upwards as she sees her oldest son step back into the room with a reloaded shotgun on his side. Lyle holds the muzzle against her face. He closes his eyes. Afterwards, it's eerily quiet in the house. It's only been a few minutes since the brothers burst in, but the room is transformed. Blood splatters the walls, soaks the couch, and stains the gold rug and parquet floor. The peppery smell of gun smoke hangs in the air. Lyle retreats from the wreckage. He heads down the hallway and out of the house. His younger brother Eric waits by the car, a stricken look in his eyes. Lyle scans the neighborhood, half expecting to hear the sound of sirens or to see the flash of red and blue lights. But there's nothing. No one's emerged to ask about the shotgun blasts that just echoed through the street. No one's called the police about the screams coming from number 722. No one knows that Jose and Kitty Menendez are dead or that their picture-perfect sons are the ones who murdered them. From Airship, I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and this is American Criminal. In the early 1990s, Los Angeles saw a run of trials that kept the entire country glued to their television screens. First, Rodney King was brutally beaten by four LAPD officers. The assault was caught on videotape, but it recorded more than just a violent beating. The footage shone a light on the systemic racism which seemed to exist in the Los Angeles police force. When those cops were acquitted of any wrongdoing, deadly, days-long riots shook the city. A few years later, former NFL player O.J. Simpson, one of the most famous men in America, was acquitted for the murders of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ronald Goldman. 
That case and the media storm it stirred up raised questions about celebrity and how it might enable or excuse criminal actions. But between those two historic trials, the story of the Menendez family captured the nation's attention in an entirely different way. On the surface, it's a simple, if disturbing, tale. In 1989, brothers Lyle and Eric Menendez killed their parents and tried to get away with it. When the matter finally made it to trial in the 90s, there was no question about who did what. The facts of the case were not in question. What was up for debate was the motivation for the bloody crime. As the courtroom drama unfolded live on television, everything that people thought they knew about the Menendez family shifted. In the end, the trial of Lyle and Eric Menendez came down to not just what crime was done, but why, and whether one stomach-churning crime excuses another. Some three decades later, the Menendez story isn't any simpler. Out of this family of four, there were two monsters to blame. But just who those were isn't a simple question to answer. Lyle and Eric picked up the shotguns of their own accord, but maybe, over years of abuse, it was Jose and Kitty who drove them to pull the triggers. This is episode one of a four-part series on the Menendez brothers, The Five-Year Plan. It's July of 1944, tiny village of Oak Lawn, just outside of Chicago. In a stucco bungalow with a manicured lawn and tidy hedges, the Anderson family is about to fracture forever. Patriarch Andy has just arrived home from work to find an empty dinner table, kids scattered, and his wife fussing about in the kitchen. Andy has a skewed perspective on what marriage and fatherhood should look like, and tonight it gets him worked up into a rage. He's had enough of his wife's backtalk, of playing the role of father to children who don't respect him, not in the way he feels he deserves. Reading the warning signs, his wife tries to placate him, bringing him a cool beer and promising that dinner won't be long. But the gesture only frustrates Andy even more. He throws the can onto the floor where it splits apart, fizzing over the linoleum. Then he storms from the kitchen, through the living room, and into his bedroom. He's watched by his young daughter, who's playing on the rug. A few minutes pass, and then the toddler sees her father march out of the house with a suitcase under his arm. He doesn't even look at her, just slams the door on his way out. Mary Louise, or Kitty, isn't quite three. She has no idea that her father won't be coming home again. She doesn't understand that in this moment, her life is changing. All she knows is that her mother is sobbing at the kitchen table. A born performer, Kitty just wants her mommy to stop crying. So, in the sudden stillness after Andy disappears, the toddler dances and twirls clumsily about the house, hoping to make her mother smile. But it doesn't work. As she gets older, Kitty will hear stories about their family, about what happened when she was just a baby. She'll learn that her father was abusive for years. But that won't stand out in her mind so much. The memory of what he did will fade. 
but her mother's actions will stay seared in Kitty's mind. And she'll wonder if her mom had been the problem. Had she let her husband slip away? Was that why Kitty's happy childhood was ripped apart? Was it her mother's fault that Kitty grew up in what people called a broken home? These questions solidify into a distorted cautionary tale Kitty carries with her for the rest of her life. She will not repeat the sins of her mother. She won't watch another marriage implode, no matter what. <laughs> 